Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5 is where we will be today. And I'll start by talking about something uh, that might seem depressing, but I don't, uh, I don't intend it to be. Micah, I think if, as we think about what's Micah trying to say in Micah chapter 5, there's a famous prophecy in there um, that uh, the wise men told Herod. Um, but what is, what's Micah trying to tell r- real people in, um, uh, when he wrote this? Uh, when they read this chapter in a horrible situation, what are they supposed to think? Which is why I reframed and retitled the message, uh, What is God Waiting For? And let me try and connect that to today. Um, in 2021, this landmark study came out uh, by an organization called Faith Communities Today. They surveyed 15,000 churches, um, and it was really alarming, uh, in America. And what they found is this. They found that 44% of churches in America have under 50 people present for Sunday morning. Churches are getting smaller, a lot smaller. So. Hey, we're average. Isn't that amazing? Uh, 44% have under 50 people. Most churches throughout this survey, so we're talking, you know, the the average of the huge churches and then normal churches and then small churches. Most churches can seat an average of 200 people, 200 seats. uh, But the average crowd in the United States on Sunday morning across all churches, so Joel Osteen plus us all combined together with a million others, you know, uh, is 65 people. So even when you factor in all of the huge churches that are a little bit bigger than ours, average attendance on Sunday in the United States is 65 people, people on average at a church on Sunday. In 2015, it was 80. It's a huge, isn't that a huge drop? 2021, 65. Uh, 2015, 80. 2010, 105. Church attendance in America is like, well, from your perspective, let me think. Yeah, this. Down. Steeply down. The average age of a pastor in America is 57, which is not good. Not good. Means young guys aren't coming out of the pipeline to replace them. The average age is 57. 57. And I say that to set the stage uh, because it's a parallel, right? Uh, Micah is writing his book in a very spiritually messed up time. Economically, things are going great. Spiritually, it's a disaster. Many people don't care. The leaders don't care. The priests don't care. Um, it's all externalism. It's all fake. Yes, we love God, but then they go and just um, abuse people, um, use the levers of power to harm them, steal houses, steal their land from them, extort them. It is not a good time to be. If you're an Israelite, you're looking around, a faithful Israelite in Micah's day, you're looking around and you're saying, and this really sucks. Things are not good. What's God waiting for? And our church is older. I could pretend that's not true. Our church is older. Um, And for some of us, you might be looking around and saying, I remember when things were different. I remember when America was different. I remember when things were better. What's God waiting for? There's all these promises. Uh, There's this beautiful promise of the Messiah that Herod asked the wise men about. It's good stuff. 
Uh, but that's not really what Micah 5 is about. Um, talks about the Messiah that's going to come, but then there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. So the problem I think that he's addressing is, you know, what is God waiting for? You know, we intellectually know that God is going to come and he's going to fix everything. Uh, but meanwhile, we look around and we're like, you know, things don't look very good. We might be tempted to become depressed, upset, pessimistic, and we wonder, what's, what's, what's God waiting for? I mean, when are things going to be fixed? We want things to, get to, to be fixed. The solution that Micah, that we can learn, that I want us to learn from Micah, is that the messiness of now is something we should expect. It's normal. You, if you're depressed about declining church, you think this church is declining. Well, every church is attendance is going down. Every church attendance is all going down from 110 average attendance in 20, uh, 2010 to 65 now. And that's an average. 44% of churches have under 55 people in there on Sunday morning. We want a cataclysmic change, some sort of blink of an eye, and Christ is going to come, he's going to fix everything, uh, and it's all going to be great. But the truth is, Micah chapter 5 teaches us that Christ bring, is going to bring the better tomorrow, but it's going to happen slowly over time in fits and starts until he comes back and wraps everything up and implements the better tomorrow. But in the meantime, we shouldn't be depressed about the messiness of now. Shouldn't be depressed, shouldn't be demoralized, shouldn't be pessimistic. That's what I want us to see from Micah chapter 5. So as we're going through this and you're thinking, what's this have to do with me? Uh, I want us to ask ourselves, what is God waiting for? And the answer is um, that he's bringing the better tomorrow, but he's bringing it slowly. And we're going to see a little bit about what our job is in the meantime. So let's pray and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into Micah chapter 5. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Help us to hear your word, be encouraged by it, and apply it uh, as the shoe fits, as the Holy Spirit wills, as you direct. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the prophets alternate between doom and gloom all the time. Good news, terrible news. Because most of the time they're talking to, they have a group of people, but they're talking to different audiences. Some of the people don't care, and so the prophets criticizing them um, and trying to get them to change their behavior, trying to shame them and convince them they're doing wrong. But the other part of the audience is people who do care, who are upset and want some hope. So the previous chapter, we had a lot of doom. There was doom, gloom, doom, gloom. Now we have some um, uh, doom and there's good stuff and bad stuff. What's the opposite of doom? Light? Yeah. Light and then doom. Uh, here is good stuff. This is a happy message, but it's not a happy message about a cataclysmic change where everything's going to be better. You go to bed and you wake up and everything's fine. Uh, it's a realistic portrait of what we can expect. So in Micah chapter 5, we start off and it says, chapter 5, verse 1, Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a city is laid, for a siege is laid against us. They'll strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. So this is poetry. So it's different than just reading Romans. So Micah's writing in a time when the Assyrians are invading there. They're about ready to destroy the northern kingdom, this huge military juggernaut, and they're this small, small kingdom. And so they're facing this annihilation, basically. 
very upset, very unsettling time, uh, very terrifying time. And so he tells them, you know, um, they're going to invade and it's really going to be bad. And then he even says, your ruler will be uh, humiliated. The king of Judah will be humiliated. It's not going to end very well. You can read 2 Kings 18 if you want to read the, the history of that and, and Hezekiah and, and things like that. Um, and in that invasion that happened around the time Mike is writing this, the Assyrians destroyed the northern kingdom and they invaded all the way to the very gates of Jerusalem and laid siege to the capital and they were only saved by this divine intervention. So Mike is telling them things are going to be bad. Things are going to be really bad and I want you to prepare for it. And so he tells them in verse 2, but no matter how bad things seem to be, so ported over to today, small churches getting smaller, he says in verse 2, gives us a promise way into the future of how it'll be fixed. He says, but you, even though all this doom is happening, there's light, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. It's a very obscure sort of reference. The prophets often don't talk in blunt language. Jesus didn't talk in blunt language. The apostles complained to him about it. Now speak to us plainly, uh, Philip asked him. But um, here, Bethlehem, he's talking to the city as though it can listen to him. Bethlehem is a nothing. But for you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. So I'm going to send you a king, and he's going to fix everything. Where is Jesus born? Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Out of you, out of Bethlehem, will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old meaning someone descended from David was prophesied about a long time ago from Micah's day, and his origins are from of old because Jesus has been around forever. So ultra from of old, from ancient times. So when this king arrives, uh, everything's going to be fixed. That's sort of the assumption. It's going to be fixed. It's going to be good. Uh, he's going to arrive. He's going to rule. The wicked will be punished. The righteous will be rewarded, and everything will be just peachy keen. My mom used that phrase all the time. Peachy keen. Everything will be good. Everything will be fixed. He says, verse 3, Mike is saying, Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son. And the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. So there's going to be a period of time. The Assyrians are going to come and other people will come. It'll be a difficult time, long period of difficult time. But one day, this ruler will arise from among you, from Bethlehem, and he's going to fix everything. So you just got to wait. You have to wait until that happens. Well, this happened at Christmas. And the wise men came to Jerusalem, following the star. They came to Jerusalem, and Herod, in his devious little way, is like, so tell me, when is this Messiah going to be born? And they're like, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, because that's what Micah said. And Herod's uh, immediately concocts his plan. Well, I'm going to make sure that this, this guy doesn't live very long because I don't want to stay in charge. I'm going to kill him. Um, this happened at Christmas. So God's people expected a period where they'll be abandoned. But when the king comes, as soon as he arrives from Bethlehem, he's going to 
make peace on earth, make justice, reverse all the evil. We'll all be a community family with God. Uh, Gentiles, uh, non-Jewish people and Jewish people, one flock, one shepherd, as Jesus said in, in John chapter 10, verse 16. So everything will be great. You just have to wait for that period of time. And then when he gets there, God, don't have much longer to wait. It's all going to be, it's all going to be fixed. But now, there's this weird, this weird interval that sort of intrudes in, in verse 4. He will stand and shepherd his flock. In the, he'll stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name uh, of the Lord his God. They'll live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Skipped ahead of myself. Sounds great. He's going to come. It's going to be fixed. Let's get the popcorn and get ready to celebrate, right? Celebrate! Um, now the, the, the weird, wait a minute sort of thing comes, because he doesn't say, and as soon as that happens, we'll all sit under our vine and fig tree and relax and we'll all be at peace because everything's better. He doesn't say that. In chapter 5, what's he say? He says, and he will be our peace, which sounds great. He will be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land and march through our fortresses. That doesn't sound like a lot of, that doesn't sound like a lot of peace. He says he will be our peace as though he arrives and we trust in him and he's going to be our peace. But then when the Assyrians come and invade and destroy and everything else. So now it seems like there's going to be some sort of we trust in this king and he's going to be our peace while a lot of other horrible things are happening. In Micah's day, Babylon wasn't the evil empire uh, on the block because Babylon was nothing right now. Assyria was the evil big empire that was threatening God's people. So when Micah's reaching for, who do I reach for to personify evil? He reaches evil in general. Through all ages, he reaches for Assyria as the boogeyman. Like in our pop culture today, if I wanted to reach for, maybe I'm getting dated, but if I wanted to reach for this universal symbol of darkness, um, to, just to make a point, I would talk about Darth Vader, or I'd talk about Voldemort, or I'd talk about some evil character from a movie that everyone knows is terrible. Maybe the Emperor from Star Wars, whatever, but some universally known bad person to get the point across about this symbol of evil. In Micah's day, Assyria is this universal symbol of evil. And so I think what he's saying here is that the king's going to come and everything's going to, we're expecting everything to be great. He's going to shepherd his people. It's all going to be great. But then chapter 5 introduces, it sort of rips that rosy picture into two phases. And now there's this weird in-between phase where he will be our peace, so it seems like he's come, but all of the good stuff hasn't quite happened yet. And in the meantime, he'll be our peace when the Assyrians invade our land, when bad things happen. Assyria being a representative of just evil, evil in general, when God's community faces horrible problems that seem unsolvable. I think Assyria just represents Satan fighting against God's community, whether Israel or uh, now the New Covenant people in, in, any, in any time. And as we look around today at, a, at a, our country or the church, it's easy to feel defensive and upset 
There's all sorts of um, sexual confusion that's going on in our society. There's a whole lot of gender confusion that's going on in our society. Young boys and girls being confused about who they are by a society that's encouraging them to believe things that aren't true. So they, they irrevocably change their bodies in ways that they will likely regret once they are adults, but now it can't be fixed. And there's just, there's a whole lot of Un, immoral and awful things that are going on that our society is celebrating thinking is good. There's all sorts of horrible confusion going on in the world. Issues. Satan alters his plan of attack depending on what's going to work for a particular culture. And as we look around at our world, it doesn't seem to be working. It doesn't seem like things look very good. So what we have here is this picture the Messiah, the ruler who's going to come, and it's going to be great. But now there's this interval of waiting, of enduring, of trusting, of trusting. But he says this in the midst of it in verse 5, and he will be our peace, which is why I put this up on the screen. What does it mean that Jesus is our peace? Is Jesus your peace? It's easy to say, yes, yes, yes. Peace means there's a calmness, there's a settledness, there's, a, there's an inner tranquility, there's a, a feeling, not just a feeling, but a feeling based on reality of safeness. There's a, a completeness regarding external circumstances because you are a child of the king. And so as things go on in the world, as the Assyrians invade, um, in Micah's day for real, in our day metaphorically, things are Satan is attacking the church through a million different ways. Is Jesus your peace or not? So let me ask, there's a, different ways we can get to this, but one thing we could ask uh, to get to this is this. It's common for older American Christians. Now, I'm not, this isn't a coded message to anybody, but for older American Christians, not so much younger in my experience, to ask a lot for prayer for our country, which is not a bad thing. It's good to pray for your country. Um, Jeremiah 29 talks about how we should pray for the welfare and seek out the, the welfare of the places where we live that's not our home. But the way it's often said, the way it's often framed is this posture of anxiety. We need to pray for our country because it's going bad. Fear or anxiety or uncertainty, a skittish kind of fear that things have changed and they've changed forever. And what do, do, does, if that attitude describes you, is, does that reflect Jesus being your peace while the Assyrians invade? How come we don't pray for God's kingdom, that his truth would keep marching on and that our church would do its small part to make that happen? When we, when we ask for prayer for our country with a, with a scared mindset, that, that's, not a, that's, that's not a mindset from confidence that Jesus will prevail, God's kingdom, his truth is marching on, and his kingdom's going to come and Satan will be defeated. But if, instead, if we, if we talk about our country from a perspective of, of fear and despair, we need to pray for our country because it's not like it used to be. I don't know if Jesus is really our peace, if that reflects our, our feelings and our attitude. 
If Jesus is your peace, as Micah is saying, he's saying that even when the Assyrians invade your land, you know that if we endure and hold on and trust, faith was what the catechism question was about, then the external circumstances don't destroy you. They don't depress you. They don't make you lose hope. And that's very interesting. So he says in verse 7, um, God's going to deliver his people from opposition while we wait. But what does the waiting look like? What's the waiting look like in verse 7? It talks about the remnant of Jacob will be, in verses 7 through 8, the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples. In verse 7 is one scenario, and verse 8 is another scenario. But in both of them, the remnant of his people are scattered all over the place among many nations, and there's two different reactions. And verse 7 is one reaction, and verse 8 is a different reaction. What does this waiting look like? There's three options that many believers have taken in the, um, for this question. While we wait for Jesus, what should we look like? Option one is to withdraw from society so you can stay pure. Like the Amish, right? Form their own little communities and their own little places. Discourage mixing with outsiders unless they want to sell you wooden furniture or blankets. And, you know, and they just... That you, you, you withdraw and you form your own communities and you keep, you keep the world away. So withdraw is one option that Christians have chosen. Uh, the other is a brute force approach. Um, we're waiting for Jesus. The world sucks. What do we do? The brute force approach is to, for our context, to try to make America Christian. To make America Christian. Fix things. Pass laws. Um, get a veneer of, of get a veneer of Christianity back into society where it used to be before the furnish wore off and make things go back to the way they used to be whenever way back when happened to be maybe it was the 70s maybe it was the 50s maybe it didn't really exist except in TV shows your mom used to watch but take things back to what it used to be recreate a Christian America make America Christian sort of thing which is a big thing with older Christian lead, with some older Christian leaders. And if you follow any of those people, most of them are older because they remember a different time, and that's what frames how they want to tackle the issue. The other one, which verses 7 and 8 picture, is a count, what are God's people going to be like while they wait in this in-between time? A countercultural minority. The remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples, not collected in one place is some stronghold separated from the world on a hill somewhere. Not instituting a fake Christian America by brute force, by passing laws that no one will listen to, or making prayer go back into public school, which doesn't change anyone's hearts anyway. Uh, the, the brute force thing, no. He says there'll be the remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many peoples among the nations, a scattering like salt sprinkled into a dish. It's not collected in one place. It's just sort of diffused everywhere, and it permeates the whole dish. Counter-cultural minority. And verses 7 and 8 shows two different responses. Verse 7, remnant of Jacob will be in the midst of many nations like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. So picture your grass with this, this layer of frost or dew water in the grass. Beautiful, wonderful, a good result. The grass will maybe kind of be green, depending how hot it gets today, because of the dew that was on the grass. 
a good response from the people of God scattered wherever they happen to be in small churches like ours, big churches. The other is God's people are pictured as these lions in the midst of the forest. And it's talking about the reaction that people have. On the one, the watering the grass, nourishment, life, good, good reaction. The other one, Christians are not liked. They're viewed as destroying society, ripping things to pieces, and they're hated. God's peoples are spread out all over the world. Those two reactions are the, if the church is doing its job, those two reactions are what you get. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 14 to 16, he compared, um, for, he said, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And when we give the message, it's a, there's a good reaction, but to the, one, to the one we are an aroma that brings death, and to the other an aroma that brings life. He pictures the Christian message as this wafting, like a wafting uh, trail of incense. To some people it brings life, to other people they hate it and it brings death. That's sort of the same thing Mike is getting at here in verses 7 and 8. And so we come back to the same sort of thing. What is God waiting for? They want the Messiah to come. They expect, the first part of the chapter, you expect him to come. He's going to appear in Bethlehem. He's going to fix everything, and everything will be great. He'll shepherd his people. It's going to be great. Get the popcorn ready and everything else. But now there's this interval. What is God waiting for? Why is it taking so long? And so now the solution seems to make more sense. The messiness of now is normal. We want a cataclysmic blink of an eye. We're done. Everything's fixed. But Christ is bringing the better tomorrow slowly in fits and starts. And if we remember that, if we really realize that, I'm sure you've heard that before, but if we actually realize that, then it will change what we think about what's happening to our country, what we think about the world, and we'll have a realistic expectation of what kind of, what kind of world we're operating in as Christians. So if you don't realize that it's going to come in fits and starts, you'll be angry because America isn't what it used to be. You'll be angry when the next legislation's passed. You'll be angry. But if you do know that the ruler has come and he's going to exercise his power and it will be fixed and he will shepherd his people, but there's going to be an interval where he's working and has scattered his people like dew among the grass all over, all over across the nations, then you won't get angry when America doesn't care about God. You won't get angry because the 50s aren't coming back. You won't get angry because what else do we expect? So what's the goal for the better tomorrow? What's the goal for a better tomorrow? These are pictures of houses abandoned in Detroit. If you want to find pictures of abandoned, crumbling houses, just Google ruined houses Detroit and you'll find some. What's the goal for the better tomorrow? Verses 10 to 15 I'll cover in one short chunk. God tells us what the end result will be after all of this in-between time is over. What does he want us to be like at the end? He talks about renovation and renewal and restoral, restoration yours and mine. And in verses 10 to, 10 to 13, he talks about 
false props that we put in our life that he's using this in-between time to, to knock out of the picture so that when that day does come, we're more ready to reckon him who he is. So he says in verse 10, uh, he talks about destroying 10 and 11, destroying false security. In that day, so when the day comes, I'll destroy your horses from among you and demolish your chariots. Tear down your strongholds. Uh, there's no hitching post outside, so no one, no one here has horses here. Maybe they're boarded somewhere. But the point is, the, the thing that if you're trusting in something for security, Israel trusting in foreign alliances to help protect them from Assyria, God's going to knock away all of those false false security blankets so they actually trust him instead of something else. Maybe, so God is doing that today as well with us. Is that why God is shrinking churches in the West and growing them in the South? The global South, South America, South, Af South America, Africa, Asia, 80% of Christians in the world are not in the West. Europe and America, 20%-ish. Christianity is exploding everywhere but here. Literally everywhere but here. False security, a lethargy because of alleged freedom from danger. We're a Christian nation. We're not a Christian nation. False security, is that why God is shrinking churches in the West and exploding them everywhere else in the world. You know, the largest Baptist church in the world is not in America, it's in South Korea. Tens of thousands of members. The church is not in a bad condition. It's exploding everywhere except in America and the West. Verses 10 and 11, destroy your false sense of security. Verses 12 and 13, destroying your idols, the things that you worship instead of God or alongside God. So the Israelites, they, they never, they always continued coming to the temple and bringing sacrifices. The problem is it's, it's, all, it's all just rote. It's just a routine. There is no real love there. They're really worshiping other things and doing other things. Idolatry just means an intense or excessive devotion. Do we have idols today? Do you have idols today? Do I have idols today? Here's how you know if you worship something. We're supposed, if you're a Christian, you're supposed to worship God, and we all know we have to say God's number one. But how you know if you worship something else is this. If it's taken away from you, whatever it is, you are absolutely crushed. That's how you know if you're wor what you worship. If it's taken away from you, you are absolutely destroyed. You're completely disoriented. Your life will change. Things will never be the same again. And it, it's like your soul has been ripped out. That's how you know if you worship something or if you worship God. Because it's easy for God. I worship God, but that sort of gets shoved over here, starts collecting dust, and you really are focusing on other things while still doing all the other things that Christians are supposed to do. If you take, if, if the opportunity to gather and worship were taken away and it could never happen again, you could never come and be around other people to worship the Lord, would any of that be true of you? Would you be crushed? Would you be completely disoriented? Would your life change? Would things never be the same again if you couldn't come somewhere to worship God with other people? 
And what if the answer is no? That it, none of that would be true of you. Wouldn't be a big deal. If your, your access to God's word was taken away, all the apps and all the paper Bibles, they're all gone. The, the Bibles, the channel God uses to speak to us. Would any of those things be true of you? You'd be absolutely crushed. You'd be totally disoriented. Your life would change. Things would never be the same again. Your soul has been ripped out. If you could never read the Bible again, would that be true of you? Or would it be like, oh, like the membership you canceled at the gym, you know? Oh, well, it didn't really go that much anyway, you know, just who cares? What would that be true of you? If the answer to both those questions is a no, then idolatry is a possibility. That no matter what you say, God is not at the center of your life. Something else is. So the point, the, the point is not that we're all terrible people, but that God is using this messy and in-between time to renovate us so we can make sure we answer yes to that question. To renovate us, to restore us. So maybe a better question is, is there a trend in your life away from idolatry so that God is really at the center of your life. That's what God's doing in between, because in the end, it'll be fixed, it'll be finished. In Ecclesiastes 3.16, Solomon asked the same question I did at the beginning. He said, I look around at the world, and uh, oh, I was supposed to do that there. He says, I look around at the world, and uh, I just see everything reversed. In the place of judgment, I see wickedness. In the place of justice, I see wickedness. And I wonder, where's the justice in the world? And that's the same sort of question that we're confronted with when you read Micah chapter 5. Why is God waiting? What's he doing now? Because things don't look very good now. So we intellectually trust God's promise that he's going to come and fix everything. But why is it taking so long? What is he waiting for? And the answer that Micah helps us to see is that the messiness of now is normal. And if we can understand that, then our whole posture toward the world and society will change. We want a cataclysmic blink of an eye change, but Christ is going to bring the better tomorrow slowly in fits and starts. The ruler arrived on Christmas Day, just like the wise men told Herod, but we're waiting. He's supposed to be our peace while the Assyrians invade, in the midst of the invasion. There is a king who's going to fix everything, but wants to teach us to make Jesus our peace, to really make him our peace first. There is a king who's going to rescue his community from whatever shape you know, evil is going to take, but deliberately scatters us among the nations like showers on a field of grass so we can be salt and light so other people can join the family too. There is a king whose goal is to renovate and restore hearts and minds and make us so idolatry is gone, false security is gone, but is using difficult circumstances to, to purge those things out of us now while we wait, while we wait. We need to trust the Lord and know his kingdom is coming. It's like the Lord's Prayer teaches us. But we need to be patient and work while we wait because he's fixing us. He's gathering people into his family and we're supposed to be scattered all over. Not hiding in one place waiting for the cavalry to come, but scattered throughout the world as a countercultural minority 
while we wait. He's our peace while the Assyrians are invading. And he's our peace because we know that he's going to come and fix everything in the end. And that's the picture that Micah chapter 5 shows us. And that's what you need to leave here today knowing in your life. Be patient and wait and persevere because the better tomorrow is coming. And God is waiting for a reason, and it's a good reason. It's for your sake, and it's for the sake of the people scattered abroad who he's put you where you are to meet and to see and to communicate with. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today in Jesus' name. Lord, work on our hearts. Help us to make your Son our peace, to really make him our peace and convict our hearts, change our lives, and move us from being who we are to the people you've saved us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.